Hello, this is Ted Floyd. I am the editor of the American Birding Association's Birding Magazine, and I've been out birding for much of the past week. This is my favorite time of the year with the nesting season in high gear. It's also my favorite time of the year because I get to interact so extensively right now with young birders at ABA teen birding camps, in connection with the ABA Young Birder of the Year program, and simply out in the field enjoying birds and nature together. This is also the time of the year when the ABA kicks into its nesting season appeal, an urgent mid-year campaign to raise money for all our young birder programs, as well as the many public services like this podcast, which require funding beyond basic memberships. To contribute to the nesting season appeal, please donate online at aba.org give or call us at 800 850 2473 and give what you can. Programming at the ABA is highly cost efficient and your donation will go directly to resources for young birders and the whole community of people who care about birds and birding. Again, that website is aba.org give and the phone number is 800-850-2473. Thank you for ensuring a bright future for birds and for birders And good birding to all of you. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. It's the last Thursday of the month and we have the monthly panel coming up. So I'll make this part up at the top brief. But I do want to make one quick announcement about something we talked about earlier in the month. You might remember when I talked to Mike Lanzone and Scott Whittle about their cool Terra project. They are coming up to the end of their Kickstarter campaign, and they're still a little bit short. So if you are at all interested in getting yourself one of these cool devices or supporting this project, now is the time to do it. You have until the beginning of July, so not quite a week, to do so. I'll put the link to the Kickstarter in the show notes. Uh, I do really hope that it gets funded. That is the future. This is the present. It is this month in birding. We have a panel of Most Ike, Birdiecast Talbot, and Joanna Wu. We talk bird scaring googly eyes, bird habitat as climate sinks, and our favorite bird nicknames, among other things. Exciting stuff, all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of June 2021. I feel like I should offer an update on that wandering Hearman's goal that I talked about a couple weeks ago. This individual has already provided first records, not only for Georgia, but also Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey, as well as the second for Virginia. After wandering up half the East Coast, the bird has apparently returned to Georgia, where it was seen this week at the same place it started two months ago. Though it keeps overshooting states that would have enjoyed this first record, it was eventually seen in Beaufort County, South Carolina, where it, of course, represents a first record. There's one other first to report a neotropic cormorant was seen in Billings, Montana, where it would represent a first record of this continually and shockingly expanding species. And that is not the only northward erupting species to note this week. It has been quite a month for white-tailed kites in the middle of the continent. Ohio had its second record in Harrison County, seen by many this month. It was not that long ago that this species was added to the state's list for the first time. And up in Wisconsin, another white-tailed kite was seen in Burnett, County, that state's sixth, and either the third or fourth record for Illinois was recently seen in Madison County. As I alluded to before, white-tailed kite is a graceful raptor of the southern Great Plains and California and prone to wander. As you can see, the last 10 years have seen a number of records up the Mississippi and Ohio River Valleys, and this year seems like one that birders in the Great Lakes and the bordering states and provinces should be on the lookout. That's all I have for you this week, but to check out the rest, read the Rare Bird Alert every Friday at aba.org RBA. You can also join the Rarity Sharing Group on Facebook. That is at ABA Rare Bird Alert. It's time again for This Month in Birding here on the last Thursday of the month, and I am joined by new and old friends to chat about the birding world here in June 2021. To the panel this week, first up, she is the host of the podcast whose name we can't say if we want to retain our clean lyrics rating, um, but one that's well worth your time anyway, from Birdshot or something thereabouts. It is Mo Stike. Welcome back, Mo. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, our West Coast contingent is doubled this week for the first time from the other Portland. It occurs to me that our, our Portland contingent is actually doubled too. Because uh, Mo, you're from Maine, but Brody Cass Talbot is of uh, Portland, Oregon. Audubon, welcome back. Hello, Brody. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to bring some coastal parody here. Absolutely. Yeah, finally. And uh, third, new to the panel, a bird ecologist with Audubon. And here on the recommendation of friend of the podcast, Prabita Saha herself, a fellow Galbatross. Prabita's never steered me wrong. Based in San Francisco, Joanna Wu. Hello, Joanna. Welcome. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me. So welcome to all of you here. I it, We're here in June. I think June gets kind of a bad reputation among birders. Um, it's a bit unfair. There's a lot going on in the birding world, if not the bird world, it, though it is the peak of baby bird season. It's probably worth noting. Um, it is Pride Month. Shout out to our LGBT plus friends and colleagues in the birding world. It was Black Birders Week, a successful second year, uh, which in many ways is harder than an inaugural event. And of course, fall migration is right around the corner already. Uh, to the panel, to each of you, what has your birding world, not necessarily the birds you're seeing, but just the world of birding, been like this month for you? So I I actually had a great month. It was the first time I felt since becoming a new mom that I was really able to get outside and look at birds. Nice. Um, and we've seen even, I mean, we're up in Maine, right? So like migration sort of ended a while ago, but there's still been some few lingering things that have popped in and been nice surprises. And I enjoyed following Black Birders Week again this year. I feel like I learned about so many great new birders out there. And the Mm -hmm. community just seems to be, if not expanding, then at least becoming so much more present in this space. And I think that's awesome. One way that I celebrated is my husband got me this book called Sparrow Envy. And it's a book of poetry and prose. Drew Lanham's new book. Yes, Yes. I got that as well. Mm. Yes. And so he got that for me for my first Mother's Day. And it's just been so nice. Like on the days that I feel like I can't get outside, like these words really, they take me to that place that I feel when I bird. And to get Mm -hmm. his perspective as being a black birder in this community too, has just been really a great way to reflect on everything that happened this past black birders uh, week. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. Sparrow Envy is is really uh, a nice book. It's, it's equal parts kind of fun and insightful and moving and all in these kind of little snippets in the way that really good poetry can be. Um, I would definitely encourage people to check that out as well. Yes, it's been a great read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's been great having, um, I know that it wasn't intentional, but but uh, it was great to see Black Birders Week uh, again this year. The timing, you know, kind of makes it feel like birding is, is coming to a fevered pitch, uh, at least <laughs> out here in Oregon. You know, that's all, that's already our kind of the, the peak of birding in a way, you know, the, the crescendo of spring. Uh, so getting to watch Black Birders Week and, and particularly enjoying some of the segments with Danielle Bellany and with Sheridan Alford and just some really fun uh, stuff there. And then also, yeah, just being able to go out and enjoy birds. I actually don't mind. I guess I start to miss the decline in song as we get into June. <laughs> um, but getting to see kind of the next generation of birds and watching, you know, woodpeckers at, at their cavities from a safe distance. Uh, it's uh, May and June to me are are just a, a great time for birding, especially now that we're using this time to focus more on inclusion in our community and and with celebrating Pride Month and Black Birders Week. Uh, it's it's a it's a great time of year. Yeah, I agree with all that, and just want to say that the last couple of weeks have just been bursting with activity and birds that are coming back that have been back. Like it was fun to get my first Western tanager. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just have so many violet green swallows these days. And it seems like all the Wilson's warblers are singing. So a lot of, uh, uh, just a lot of song and a lot of nesting of behavior. Birds are really defensive. <laughs> the red winged blackbirds are always fun to watch. So it's just, it's, it's always really fun in the spring. Um, and then I, I'm also trying to learn more about about inclusion and, and the people that we've historically excluded from the largely homogenous, <laughs> you know, stereotypically anyway, birding yeah. community, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it, people like uh, like Martha Harbison, a fellow Gal- Galbatross, and, and so many colleagues have inspired me to learn about both Pride Month and, and Black Birders Week. So it's, I think it's, it's definitely a change for the better that these uh, movements are getting more traction in the birding community. Happy to see all that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I said 
before the Blackbirders week was almost more impressive because that second that second year is always kind of the tougher one because you know the there's so much energy and intensity with regard to like an inaugural of anything mm-hmm. and to kind of you know, keep that going into a second year and find other directions to go and, you know, kind of like feel present in the community and really feel comfortable um, was really a super thing. It felt very comfortable. And, um, you know, just a shout out to all the people who were involved in that and and put on such a great, a great show and a great week um, as, you know, something to look forward to in the years to come. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they did a great job. Mo, do you want to talk about googly eyes? You have no idea how much I want to talk about googly eyes like this. <laughs> my love for googly eyes runs deep. Yeah, I read this and I thought that this would be this would be a good one for you. <laughs> <laughs> the best part about it, so for those of people who don't know, so my co-host Sarah and I on our podcast, we met in college, uh, blind roommates, hit it off like our very first night together um, in our dorm. That sounded weird, but you know what I'm saying? (laughs) So we're like best friends still, but we had this plant in college. I don't know if anyone has ever seen the Christopher Walken SNL skit where he puts googly eyes on all of his plants. (laughs) But we did that. We like put googly eyes on all of our plants and legitimately the picture that they have uh, for this article about googly eyes to keep birds out of fishing nets is like what our plant looked like. It it was like (laughs) major deja vu flashback. So shout out to Aaron, our former plant in our dorm room, but uh, yeah, he was the best. Um, Is there a certain plant that really works well with googly eyes? If I knew anything about plants, I would probably have an answer to that. But like (laughs) the best thing, you should just watch the SNL skit with Christopher Walken because he puts googly eyes on like giant, like giant leaves of like ferns and stuff. And he puts Mm -hmm. them on like little tall, like skingly looking things like, oh, it's great. So good. I don't know what our plant was. It never bloomed. It didn't actually look that happy, which is part of why we had to put the googly (laughs) eyes on it. Um, But it was great. So yeah, it was a good plant. But that has nothing, the plant has nothing to do with this, but the googly eyes have everything to do with this. This article from New Scientist, it's been discovered that about 400,000 diving birds die each year when they become entangled in nets that run vertically down in the water between two different buoys. And in an effort to reduce these deaths, a team of conservation researchers in Glasgow, UK, have developed a method that is akin to what they use at airports, which mm-hmm. is um, basically just like giant eyeballs to... Because, <laughs> because you know, birds, like, they're not fooled by, like, plastic owls or, like, no. a scarecrow that doesn't move or, like, a little twingly piece of, like, shiny stuff. Like, they get really accustomed to that and they're like, oh, that thing is actually not a threat But what they have found is that eyes that sort of like blink and move do create this like looming eyes effect. Like they've actually called it an LEB, like a looming eyes buoy. And apparently it's convincing enough that birds are kind of like, whoa, that thing is a threat. Um, Hmm. It causes this phenomenon that triggers collision neurons, which is something they actually reference chickens. So like the size of the eyes of a a predator or something um, is how chickens like are aware of danger. Like the bigger the eyes, huh. the the more the chickens perceive threats. Um, I also love that they called out the Canada goose in here because they're like, the Canada goose has the worst eye vision of any seabird. And so we had to make the eyes big enough for the Canada goose to be able to see them. <laughs> so they're just like these giant eyeballs on top of this buoy, but they spin around. So the wind effect, because the wind changes and the eyes have sort of this... Um, they're sort of uh, staggered, so they kind of create this effect like they're moving. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently, it was significant enough to reduce the amount of deaths of long-tailed ducks with, by 25% within a 50-meter radius of each of the buoys. And it was actually pretty long-lasting. It took about two or three weeks for the birds to be able to recognize that the buoys were not a threat, or the eyes, I should say, were not a threat. Mm-hmm. But in most cases, these nets only are in the same spot for a few days. So it, mm-hmm. it's going to be hopefully a really effective measure. And hopefully it means we get to see googly eyes every time we're out on boats. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's the ultimate goal here. <laughs> Add that to the seascape. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. It makes me envision some conservation biologists just stumped on how to prevent these uh, deaths and watching Scooby-Doo with their kids and then you know, seeing <laughs> the googly eyes in the painting in the background and being like, that's it. Yeah, maybe watching the Christopher Walken sketch. Like they're putting googly eyes on all their plants and like suddenly they pan over to the side and suddenly the light bulb, boom, googly eyes. Maybe that's how I prevent the lesser goldfinches from eating all the kale out of my garden. I just need some googly eyes on there. 
You yeah. I think you out. should absolutely test mm-hmm. that theory. I'll report back. Yeah, please report back. <laughs> because if googly eyes could solve at least 70% of the problems that exist in the world right now, like I think that would be okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. I, I love that the natural motion of the ocean makes it move. Oh, yeah. And maybe you have to make it catch the wind somehow. And that's that's where scarecrows have been failing. They're not moving. <laughs> that's right. I always see those um I always see those owls posted on random like whoever makes those has got to be making a killing because they are right. like on every tall Street building. Corner. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. And they don't work at all. Like they clearly don't work. Partly maybe because they leave them up there for, you know, years on end until they're yeah. like faded white, vaguely in the shape of a great horned owl. But like it works for me. It does. I, I, I am yeah, saying, I'm always fooled. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I am fooled by the fake owls, yeah. I'm like, what the? Oh, yeah. again, it just gets the birders, and that's. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen great horned owls sitting on fence posts, but never yeah. in a city. Yeah, mm. but I, I'm so tuned into that shape. You know, you you're, you see it in the corner of your eye, and you whip over, and it's always a, a plastic owl and not a. Uh, and not a real one. Maybe they just need the eyes. The eyes are the the eyes are the key. None of that. Uh, none of the rest of it. Yeah. Maybe just take your scarecrows, put them in pools, and put googly eyes on them, and you might have a fix right there. It's kind of like babies, right? They just fixate <laughs> on the on the eyes and yeah, and just get really honed in. That's like the first thing that they notice. Yeah, it's you're gonna have to be eat. careful because this <laughs> will keep the uh, keep the ducks away, but it might attract babies. We're gonna have to keep mm-hmm. the babies away from the harbor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm really excited to tell you guys that the National Audubon Society has just come out with a natural climate solutions report. And basically what it is, is it's a way to, as a follow up to our survival by degrees report that found Mm -hmm. that climate change is a major threat to North American birds. So next we started looking at uh, various tools in the climate toolkit and whether natural ecosystems can store carbon and, and how much. Um, and, and that way, by keeping more carbon both in the ground and capturing it in plants, that way we can reduce the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. So natural ecosystems are our great carbon sink, basically. And we studied these major U.S. habitats like forests, grassland, wetlands, and the Alaskan ecosystems. And we also looked at the urban and suburban systems because the reality is there's a lot of uh, urban and suburbs yeah. in the U.S. and and we should not cut them out of conservation efforts, right? Um, so then we basically looked at uh, the areas that store a lot of carbon and areas that are good for birds, and also areas that um, we call areas to restore, which are potentials that could be suitable for birds, but may be threatened by land conversion. Um, and also these are areas that could be effective carbon sinks if disturbance is minimized. And where we found that all the areas to, to maintain essentially store, sequester over a hundred million tons of carbon dioxide, which to put it in context amounts to about 17 to 23% of the U.S. commitment to the Paris Agreement. So that's not bad. Yeah. So just, just in natural systems alone, you can, you can sequester maybe a fifth of, of the U.S. commitment to Paris. So yeah, it was just a cool finding that if you think about the survival of both birds and humans, it, we are rooted in the ecosystems in, on which we depend for water, natural processes, food services, and, and so much more. Um, and thinking about how anthropogenic climate change has disrupted these processes, uh, but with, with the right incentives, we can reduce emissions while protecting the birds that we, we love. So. It's. It was really nice to to find out that we sort of already knew that conserving ecosystems is good for humans and birds, but it's it's nice to put it in the context of carbon and yeah. and the further ability to reduce carbon emissions. Yeah, I thought the focus on the the cities and suburban areas was really interesting, just because you know we think of so many of our favorite birding sites are urban or suburban or nearby sites because that's you know, close to where we live and close to where we, we want to go birding. And so, you know, having that as an important, not only as a carbon sink, but also as bird habitat, because birds are sort of unique in the way that they, they use every part of the landscape more than like maybe say a, a bobcat or a tiger salamander. You know, we definitely need more 
of those sort of urban parks, and it maybe and might encourage people to to put those in places that that traditionally have not had access to green spaces. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really really important for a, for a lot of reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And urban areas are actually pretty amazing because they're kind of a mosaic of of various ecosystems, mm-hmm. like forests. You get a lot of people. There's wetlands often because a lot of urban areas are coastal. Um, so you can just get a mosaic of habitats and urban areas actually have a, a lot of bird diversity thanks to the diversity of habitats. So, oh yeah. And you think of some of the, yeah. You, you think of some of the most famous birding locations, uh, in, in North America and a lot of them are, are parks like Central Park or in New York mm. city or, um, I, that, you know, that's probably the most famous or, or Montrose point in Chicago, or, um, I'm sure you on the West Coast uh, know a bunch of those <laughs> as well. I'm thinking of the one in San Diego, the the big cemetery, Fort Rosecrans, uh, in San Diego as well is like one of the best places to bird. And that city, you know, so many of these places are are near and dear to the birders who live there. Right, absolutely. Yep. But access is a really good thing to keep in mind for planning purposes going forward. For mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, that's been a big uh, a big issue here. Is that that tension? I think in sometimes in the West when we generally have lower densities and have younger cities, uh, there's been more of an effort to try and, uh, I think, protect some of the important natural areas, but then that tension too of, of trying to create access and sometimes the disagreement about what the uh, primary purpose is. I'm one of those yeah. people that really feels like it, it is important to, to have access to natural areas so that it benefits human communities as well, but also inspires us to, um, yeah, to prioritize that sort of conservation and, and uh, protection. Mm-hmm. We certainly feel pretty fortunate here in Portland to have a, a good tradition of, of protecting our important natural areas. Um, but uh, yeah, w- work like this makes you realize there's always more to be done, particularly as we continue to grow. Do you guys have a favorite urban landscape? Uh, mine is actually in the other Portland over here on the East Coast in Maine. Yeah. Uh, uh, mine is actually our, our cemetery, the Evergreen mm-hmm. Cemetery. I didn't think of cemeteries as being wildlife hubs until I got into birding. <laughs> but then I'm like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. It's like a massive, expansive area, like tons of trees, at least at least at this one here. And it's like, no one's ever going to ask to develop over a cemetery. <laughs> exactly. like, yeah. It's like, it's kind of here for good. And and we're really fortunate. It has like two ponds. It's also got a nice forested area that they've just like kind of chunked onto the cemetery as part of conserving. So you do get like some lower, like bushier stuff as well. Mm-hmm. But it's fantastic in the in the spring and in the fall. And even like year round, um, you know, the only problem being that the trees are so tall because they're so old and the leaves are so dense. So you're like, well, I can hear it, but I don't know what it is. I can't see it. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I have really grown to love cemeteries as being, especially in an urban area, a great place to see some good birds. Yeah, for us in Portland, we've got a spot called Whitaker Ponds, which I think the name could use some work, but it's uh, <laughs> it used to be basically a dump, and there there were some ponds there, and and they uh, they reclaimed this area and made a city park set to work. Uh, I, there's some insane number of uh, tires and, and old vehicles they pulled out of this, these ponds. And now it's become sort of like the, the, uh, archetypal birding spot. It's like hmm. a perfect place to go for a yeah. one hour walk. There's ponds, there's, uh, a diversity of tree species, there's open fields. Uh, and, you know, there's beavers and nesting great horned owls. And, hmm. and it's just become this great example of how we can actually, uh, reclaim the land from our, uh, past mistakes and create really thriving habitat uh, pretty you know, urban spot and just a sort of a, a classic portland favorite yeah. i feel like that's happened with more and more dumps these days too mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah when i used to live in the triangle uh, of north carolina there was a, a landfill on the north side of raleigh that i would go to from time to time just this it was close to a big reservoir and it had to, you know, the gulls from the reservoir would roost there at night and then they'd all go to the dump in the morning. And so occasionally, like if you're concentrated, you could find kind of unusual. I found a glaucus skull one time. That was probably my <laughs> biggest claim to fame. But now it's like a park. Now they've capped it. It's a it's a public park. And and my eBird hotspot is, you know, North Wake Landfill, formerly <laughs> landfill. It's in the parentheses now. No one's finding a glaucus skull there. But uh, like the general birding is probably a lot better. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing on Twitter is like what 
I know this spot. Let me take you to a to a sewage outlet, <laughs> like a landfill, and that's like the thing that birders always get excited about. Yeah, totally. We have a weird thing for for the most disgusting parts of of the Anthropocene. <laughs> yeah, but the birds love it. The birds love it. Yeah, that's been a big change that I think I've seen over the last uh, few years is sewage ponds being redesigned to have a more natural look and feel mm-hmm. to them. So becoming natural areas where people can visit uh, instead of these, you know, um, unnatural looking ponds behind totally. chain link fence. Totally. And so, yeah, some of our most productive wetlands for birding are uh, sewage mitigation ponds. And that's been a really amazing thing to see. And uh, and it's actually been some of the cities that have gone for it have been in conservative areas like like Prineville that are that went for it because it was a lot cheaper to use these natural yeah. systems for purification. Mm. So that's been another, I think, uh, interesting and, and uh, rewarding trend to watch. Oh, Florida has a ton of those. Like one of my <laughs> favorite places in Central Florida is Orlando Wetlands Park, which is, you know, effectively these sewage lagoons that are natural. Um, but it's also this amazing birding place with, uh, you know, as any sort of wetland area in Florida is, it's like you can walk into 50 species without even working very hard because there's just so many birds there. Um, yeah, it's, it's really cool the way that is. And, and I know in, uh, in the West, in the drier parts of the West, that's huge too. In, in Tucson, uh, Sweetwater Wetlands and, um, mm-hmm. a few others in that, in the region that are, that are equally beloved birding locations yeah not exactly the same thing but i was actually confused at disney's animal kingdom as to like what was an exhibit and what <laughs> was, <laughs> yeah what Classic was like Florida. an actual yeah. bird yeah exactly. <laughs> it's a one of our surprising findings in the natural carbon natural climate solutions report is that even though coastal wetlands make up such a small proportion of the total carbon storage per per acre they're the most productive system. They're, hmm. They outcompete forests and other habitats just because they're they're incredibly great carbon sinks. And I think a lot of the carbon gets stored underground too in in sort of the muddy um, yeah, substrate. Yeah, that's the important so, part. Yeah, getting that carbon back under the under the ground, <laughs> out yeah, of the atmosphere and in the ground. Yeah. So that's I'm I'm happy to hear about the restoration of sewage areas because I I think that can also disproportionately you know, be a carbon sink as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. Every time mosquito season picks up, <laughs> I'm very happy for news about wetlands that makes me think otherwise about <laughs> mosquitoes. <laughs> it's always reassuring oh, to know yeah. they have a purpose. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Brody, do you get much mosquitoes? In San Francisco, we're, we're so lucky that we don't really have mosquitoes. And I, I know most of the world... <laughs> Probably yeah. hates us right now. Oh, bless you! <laughs> I know. Yeah, we, we have we have very few in Portland. We, mm-hmm. uh, we we're lucky on that front as well. Yeah, I might be moving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> From one Portland to the other. <laughs> From one Portland to the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We also we have few ticks. We have uh, oh, no don't, poisonous don't snakes. We to tell you have no chiggers either, and that's going to be. <laughs> we definitely do not. I grew up in West Virginia, and those were the bane of my existence. So yeah, the worst. Is, yeah. So you actually live in Eden. I missed that earlier. <laughs> okay. Uh, for for the sake of the remaining uh, housing prices, uh, yeah, it's right. terrible. You definitely don't want to. Move to no one. Over. No one wants to go there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eden is expensive. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Brody, do you want to talk about the pitching study? I love that Brody got like scientific <laughs> abstract, and I got googly eyes. Like, <laughs> it's great. I. I could have gone for some googly eyes, but I, think, <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't Bernie. have given it the treatment that you <laughs> you did, uh, Mo. But uh, yeah, there is a new study out this month in Ecology and Evolution titled A Community Context for Aggression, the Multi-Species Audience Effects on Territorial Aggression in Two Species of Paraday. Uh, I might have gone for a you know slightly sexier title, but uh, <laughs> it's a good study. And what that means in human terms is do birds act more aggressively in these interactions, if there are more species around to observe the interaction, it's almost like how self-conscious are these birds right. uh, when they're fighting? And they were specifically looking at uh, Carolina chickadee and tufted titmouse, uh, and I think the all the field work was done in Florida. Uh, and they found kind of the evidence that they were looking for. They had this hypothesis that aggressive interactions were more intense if there were more species of birds around to observe the interaction. So essentially they would quantify the number of different species that were around and then the response 
uh, to playing various uh, tape of these aggressive calls and uh, and see how those correlated and a very strong correlation, which to me is pretty fascinating, right? What what I love about this study is I feel like even birders, sometimes we go out and we go birding and we just think that these are these little automatons hopping from <laughs> branch to branch. Uh, and, and we sort of gloss over how really hyper aware these creatures are and how amazingly complex their social lives are and how there's, there's just so much context going on in the lives of these birds. So this study, I think, did a great job of bringing that uh, to mind. I think things that, that birders have perhaps subconsciously known, but mm-hmm. it's really neat to see it sort of proven on a, on a, a data intensive level. You did a great job laying that out, Brody. I just want to say. <laughs> <laughs> and it occurred right. to me as I was uh, setting this up and getting ready to talk to you all that I am, I am probably the only one that has both Carolina chickadees and tufted titmouse, <laughs> tufted titmice, tuf, titmouses, titmice. I don't know which one it is. Uh, regularly. I don't think any of you have Carolina chickadees. And uh, Mo, I'm not sure neither, if you get yeah. tufted titmice all that often. We do. I mean, I hear them all the yeah. time yelling peter 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 to each right. other okay but, so you you're, yeah. you're up there towards the top end of their of their range um but you know this did as as you said brody this did kind of lay out something that i sort of intuitively had figured out and but really hadn't thought too much about it's like when i'm pishing when i'm trying to attract the birds like if it's just chickadees they don't really pay much attention to me like i don't have a ton of luck but if i hear titmice titmouses i'm still not sure exactly what the plural of that one is they they respond a little bit better, so I do sort of more key in on on the titmouse, the tufted titmouses, than I do the chickadee, um, hmm. which is sort of what the the study was was saying. Like, but maybe you have different pishing. I don't know if the other chickadees do similar sorts of thing. Like, what is what is your experience pishing? Have you noticed any sort of weird intraspecies relationships with how whether your attempts to attract birds actually works? Well, certainly out here, the best way to try to attract uh, warblers, and I know you've talked about this, Nate. Uh, yeah, out, out here, yeah, the best way to, to get warblers, particularly in in the fall uh, and winter, when we do have some war- some wintering warblers here, is is if there's chickadees around. Oh, yeah. We, For warblers in fall, go where chickadees call. Right, exactly, yeah. And, and we don't have, we often don't have as many uh, mixed paraday flocks. We, we mm-hmm. often have kind right. of one... Um, we have uh, black-capped and chestnut-backed chickadees where I am up in the mountains or on the dry side of Oregon, you might get some mountain chickadees. So we don't often have these mixed paraday flocks, but we, we certainly have found, or uh, for me personally, I've, I've found that, um, yeah, that that's the best way to get, it's almost like that's the secret ingredient is you have to have chickadees, but you have yeah. to have a little bit more as well. Right. A red-breasted nuthatch really adds some spice. To uh, the yeah, mix. see down here it's a uh, blue-gray gnat catchers. Like they'll respond to anything. I love the red-breasted nuthatch. By the way, they just have such a plaintive, like meh, meh, <laughs> call. <laughs> Tinny yank yank. Yeah, but then with the with a you know a fair amount of fishing and and some uh, chickadees going off, they really just take it to the next level, you know, and they get into like hundred beats a minute, like the mm. you know house. Uh, music tempo. The... <laughs> gink, 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 gink. <laughs> what bird? What birds in your areas respond to pishing the best? Because wren, it's it's Carolina wren for me. Like I can get them up anytime. I mean, to me, this article just validates uh, that I'm not pishing in the right areas because I've <laughs> always thought it was just me not knowing how to pish anything. But yeah. <laughs> so I do not have a good answer for you on that question. <laughs> Yeah, I think here, you know, our corollary to Carolina wren is Buick's wren, and that's a, a really feisty bird that uh, always wants to see what all the commotion is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, sparrows in the winter, um, they're hidden in, in the uh, in the blackberry until you pish, and then they sort of pop up to, to sort of placidly check stuff out before they go back to their little caves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, that's what I often think about those two. Yeah, for us, I think it's bush tits. There's yeah. always one and then there's 20 more hanging out and then when you pish they kind of poke their heads out they're, they're very curious and, and fun and the chestnut back chickadees sometimes check you out too which um is on par with this paper yeah i'm jealous of your chestnut back chickadees that's actually been um a bird i've never seen before oh my but gosh i've never birded the, i've never birded the pacific northwest it's uh 
kind of the, a black hole for me. The one part of North America that I have not spent very much time in at all. At any time well, at, all, at all, actually. <laughs> you'll have to come out, Nate. We've got yeah, uh, chestnut back chickadees. We've got 12 species of woodpeckers. So, I, yeah, uh, I know. Yeah. Stop. We'd love to have you out. All Don't the aquas and merlets. Yeah, and the very right. thrushes. Yeah, very thrush. Yeah. I finally got a varied thrush this past winter because one was showing up at a, a feeder in Raleigh here in North wow. Carolina. Um, really? And it stayed for like, I want to say like three or four months before wow. kind of wow. taking off. A lot of birders saw that bird. I, I mean, I, I need to hear it because, um, you know, mm-hmm. they've got that kind of ethereal call song note that's very much, you know, Pacific Northwest green, old growth foresty, at least in my mind. But um yeah, it was maybe not such an exciting look because it was like hanging out in the backyard with a bunch of robins. So, so it was still a nice bird. Mm-hmm. Cool. Have you all found that traveling internationally, uh, if you've been able to, that that pishing works? I, I feel like I spent a number mm. of years in Taiwan and Bhutan and, and the pishing just didn't seem to work at all. Yeah. And maybe there weren't, where I was, there wasn't Paraday or yeah. whatever it was. But yeah, it, it was, it was um, basically a just stopped after a while. Yeah, it doesn't work in the tropics very well. Um, right. Those birds are too zenned out. <laughs> They're too chill. Um, I've heard from UK birders that it does work similar. You know, they have a ton of parody there. Um, right. You know, blue tit, mm. great tit, all the all all of them. I mean, I've tried it just because like it's reflexive for me. Like if mm-hmm. I see some little birds moving around, like I'm gonna go psh, 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 just to you know see. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't work in the tropics very much. And I think because mm. they don't have alarm calls of chickadees and, and titmice are so very distinctive. And there's nothing sort of like that, that kind of raspy. Well, maybe there is. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm speaking out of turn. But it's different. Like they don't recognize it as a, as a warning sign, which is sort of what you're trying to elicit when you're, you're pishing. Mm. Maybe people who write in. Maybe, maybe listeners who have had any experience with pishing in the tropics can. Because can, there's certainly lots of wrens down there. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't spent much time in the neotropics, but um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear what what folks think about about it, or around uh, other locations because here it works great, and I never had any luck in Asia. So. Yeah, mm. yeah, I was wondering. Speaking of eliciting a uh, kind of an alarm response, I I wonder about the ethics of fishing and and whether mm. we're you know causing stress to the birds or or something. Does Does anyone know anything about that? The moral issue of fishing. That's a good question. I don't know that there's been a lot on it. I know that there's been a lot of talk about playback uh, mm-hmm. because that specifically is about, you know, making a bird think that there's another male uh, around that is, you know, you know, I, I'm I'm not one of those people that's like totally against playback. I think it has its use. Um, but obviously, it's the sort of thing that you have to have a lot of discretion when you're mm-hmm. using it. I, I think you can very easily overdo it. And there are certain times of year, like now, when birds are nesting, that it's not necessarily very ethical to to do it. Um, mm-hmm. As far as pishing, I don't know. Like I've always found chickadees and titmice just to be super curious, just generally speaking, and like they'll respond to just about anything um, in some way. I, you know, when I do pish, I try to pay close attention to how the birds are acting and how they are responding to it. And a lot of times, if I pish in a, like a flock with chickadees and there are some warblers and stuff in it. Um, the warblers are just kind of hanging out and they're still going about their regular behavior and gleaning bugs off of leaves. And so I don't worry too much about it, but also it's kind of exhausting to pish for like more than five, five minutes or <laughs> yeah, so. Like sure. it, it's, right. it can kind of wear you out. Yeah. Like how do trumpet players do it? I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> like I, I get, I get tired of pishing after a while and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the birds I guess do too. Cause sometimes I'll be pishing and they just leave. So like they have the option to do that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I know that we at Pearl and Audubon often on trips, uh, we don't really pish as much um, during breeding season because these mm-hmm. birds have a lot going on and uh, particularly in, in nesting season. Um, but in winter, yeah, it seems to, I think when there's a nest or eggs or young in the equation that uh, ups the ante for sort of yeah. everyone involved. Uh, but in winter, you know, these mixed flocks, I find it more effective, but also, um, yeah, you, you, you often get more of just a, a curious response mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of a life Angry, and death response. Yeah. 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 That's probably yeah. it. Yeah. I've had birds respond to the weirdest things though, too. Um, like I had Sora respond to, I don't know, like a car door slamming. <laughs> like the, you never right. know what's going to attract, what's going to attract a bird. 
our ornithology professor had us go out on a field trip and all clap together and then the, the rail responded. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> that works too. <laughs> yeah. Rails yeah, are weird that way. For Virginia rail. Yeah. yeah. I got a question of the month for you. You may be aware, maybe not aware of the sort of the hubbub surrounding the herping forum on Facebook that banned the use of the kind of cutesy terms like snack, S-N-E-K, and shell boy uh, in their group. Uh, and in response, it's been funny to see birders kind of lean into those funny descriptions. So I'm curious to ask you, what is your favorite internet-friendly bird description? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change this a little bit. Any sort of bird nickname that you think is interesting or funny or useful. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Butterbutt for Yellow Rumped Warbler. That's sort of the classic. I'm not a big fan of Butterbutt, but a lot of people use it. And uh, are there any bird nicknames out there that you like to use? Well, let me just say that this resonates with me because uh, despite my love of natural history, I was actually a linguistics major. And mm-hmm. one of the things you learn in Linguistics 101 is that there is descriptive grammar where you describe how people speak, and that's what linguists do. And then there's prescriptive grammar where you tell people how they should speak. Mm. And you learn pretty early on that prescriptive grammar is has long been a tool of the elites to try and separate themselves from the masses. And so I get on my high horse about this sort of stuff. In our local birding community, I remember reading from a birding luminary who was talking about how people should be ashamed to say things like red tail hawk when it is red tailed hawk. <laughs> oh. uh, and, you know, and that stuff just really uh, gets me because, you know, it doesn't make birding more enjoyable for anybody. It doesn't uh, make anybody smile. It doesn't open birding up at all. It just, uh, yeah, sort of creates these divisions. So, but I was, uh, I was disappointed to see the herping community sort of go down that route. And right. And happy about the birding community. I actually stumbled upon this today. The that Audubon last year had a story about floofs and uh, I can't remember what the other one was. And Burbs like, yeah, and borbs. Like, yes, that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With so I was glad to, that in general, I think the birding community just understands that you know it is mostly amateur enthusiasts, and whatever makes birds fun for you is great. Uh, for me, I'm going to give a defense to the Canadian goose. Uh, I know that really <laughs> drives a lot of people uh, pretty crazy, but, uh, you know, it's uh, I have traveled abroad and pretended I was Canadian, so I can't cast any stones <laughs> to go further. Cobra chicken, which I do feel like is a great way to describe that bird when you've had a negative interaction with the Canada yeah. goose. Cobra chicken is really much more, I think, evocative. Wow, that's awesome. I'm so glad you brought up the borb and floof and burb article. I was just thinking that my favorite fun description is a borb because when when I first learned about it, it was just it just made my day and it's like, yeah, that totally makes sense. Sometimes you get such a round bird that you just <laughs> you have to call it something else. So I, I absolutely love that and I'm happy that also that the birding community is is open to to making a little bit of fun of out of birding and of, yeah. of themselves because we can be really uptight about about names, right? Yes. Like we have something called the Red Hawk Casino nearby, and it used to bother me. And also seagulls, right? Right, um, the classic we, one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can beat someone up for, for just saying the wrong name. But I think that kind of, that kind of uh, negative energy is, is really preclusive to, to p- new people joining in. So why, why are we so uptight about some names? I, I don't think we need to be. In terms of like my favorite like particular bird, I, I love Hummer for mm-hmm. describing hummingbirds just because it it's like a hummer truck is like the opposite in size of how small <laughs> a hummingbird is but it totally encapsulates the angry energy of a breeding hummingbird it's totally. perfect a hummer yeah. coming at you i love calling them uh semi-palmated plovers uh semis for the same reason just trying yes. to think like a semi-truck you know, <laughs> plover. that's right yeah. Yeah. I'd be ashamed their their voice is not that. It would be perfect if that's the case. It's really more of a beep beep. Mm-hmm. So it's like a mini Cooper or something like that. But right. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure mine is like not internet famous terminology. But every time I see baby geese, like Goslings, I call them Ryan's because of Ryan <laughs> Gosling, which is like <laughs> super lame. But I'm going to keep doing it until oh, it's awesome. a thing. 
I did also recently learn um, that all of these like internet terminology things are part of this like chuggy movement. Are you guys familiar with no. chuggy? It's like a really hard thing to define, but it's like how Gen Z defines things that people have kind of like hijacked from their vocabulary. Uh-huh. So like they did it when it was cool. And now that everyone else is doing it, it's like not cool. story of everything. (laughs) It's like eventually things are cool and then they're not cool. And then they come back (laughs) as like ironic cool. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, and it's all determined by the youngest generation. And so for the history of humankind, the history of humankind. So I took a BuzzFeed quiz. I'm only like 15% (laughs) which is great, but I'm sure that Ryan Gosling comment just shot me up into like the 20th percentile. So well, uh, and let me just jump in before Nate, we, we get to yours and just say that this is something that's perhaps more appropriate for Mo's podcast. But I was amazed, you know, I went and visited my folks in West Virginia where they have a lot of tufted titmouse. And I was amazed that I cannot find anybody else that has used the name tough titties uh, for tufted titmouse. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> yes. Starting here now. This is it. Starting yeah. here now. I'm going to dedicate a whole lot of this. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I love it. I, I haven't read the the Audubon article about burbs and borbs in a long time. Like, did they did did they determine which bird is sort of at the bird borb nexus, like at where where a burb becomes a borb? Because if, I think American Dipper is sort of that bird. Borb is bigger and burb is smaller, and Dipper is sort of that perfect. You know, it's sort of robin sized, um, but it's very chunky. Uh, I think that is the that can be both exist as both burb and borb. Well, I think Dipper is a great choice for that, especially because they're mm-hmm. round and they're always just bobbing up and down. It's a yes, uh, it's a very yeah. the but the photo also that Audubon used was of a bearded tit, mm-hmm. which is a pretty oh, yeah. amazing. Very it is, much, yeah, basically a tennis ball that's been painted, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, <laughs> with like a stick with like a dowel rod, yeah, stuck with like in one running side. mascara, exactly. yeah. Um, so my favorite bird sort of nicknames, I don't know if they're internet friendly or anything like that, but um, any bird that has sort of like lesser or greater in it mm-hmm. and to make the distinction, um, you just you just cut out the entire middle. So like for the black back goals, it'd be greater back and lesser back. And for the yellow legs, it'd be greater legs and ye- lesser legs. Um, that's kind of a hard one to say. I use those all the time and I find myself having to sort of explain it, but it is sort of intuitive. Uh, especially in places where you get lots of great backs and lesser backs and great legs and lesser legs. Um, That's a great one because because some of these names are really difficult to say if you're out in a group and you're trying to say it fast. Right, right, right. Yeah, so in yeah. Central Oregon, we get three species of nuthatch. So I went out there birding with a friend from Central Oregon, uh, a friend, Cordy, and she was like, yeah, out here, you know, red-breasted nuthatch is red nut, white-breasted nuthatch is white nut, <laughs> pygmy nuthatch is peanut, and that's when everybody goes, oh. Peanut, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I was gonna I, say pig so nut, but you know, way better. And it's <laughs> pig great nut. for that little it's bird an too. Nut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're such little yeah. peanuts hopping around in the trees, and they kind of look like peanuts too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Aww. Can you guys help me come up with a short name for greater white-fronted goose? I I saw a couple oh, of those geez. in San Francisco, yeah. which is pretty unusual. I think they were just they just kind of went west before they migrated up north a couple weeks ago, yeah. and it's a mouthful. Great front goose. Great front. <laughs> It sounds like grapefruit goose or grape nuts goose. <laughs> the hunter name for them is speckle belly. Mm. Speckle belly, yeah. Which is much more fun to say. So speckle belly. Yeah. I, I've just I've I've given into that name. All right. I also like grape grapefruit. I'll throw a ring in the hat for grape nut grape nut goose. <laughs> grape nut goose. Grape nut. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Dave, yeah. for that one. You're welcome. Grape post nut post can send the check to ABA. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to use those instead. I like all of them better. <laughs> for some reason butterbutt too for me has never really like rang mm-hmm. it hasn't fil- it hasn't filled me with joy uh as yeah. much as yump does uh, yump for, yump is better yeah. yeah so that's that's been a favorite out, out in the field yeah i can't say butterbutt without thinking of the song bubble butt <laughs> so <laughs> it's like an impossible it's already out of my vocabulary because yeah. i can't do that in public yeah when, you can't when just we- sing butterbutt Butter, butter, butter. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you do. Like, try to not do it now. It's impossible. I believe that. I believe that these codes changed. But when we used to band, uh, I think my partners and I wrote "Y War" for yellow warbler, and mm-hmm. the yellow rump warbler obviously made me think of it. But we thought that was the most peaceful bird because "Y War" 
But why war? but I think it's actually <laughs> Iwa is actually the real four letter code. It's a yeah. real missed opportunity yeah, there. <laughs> yeah, yours is way better. Yeah, I totally agree. I do say BT blue and BT green mm. for um, black that are blue and black that are greens. I'd love to see them someday. <laughs> I love how this whole episode has just turned into like a West Coast, East Coast turf war. <laughs> <laughs> like this is this is idea. what Tupac and Biggie became, you guys. Is yeah, us, right. us one upping each other with the random but amount. But Mo, of- Mo, why war? <laughs> why war? Why war? Why war? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you to uh, Brody, Mo, and uh, Joanna for joining me today. You can find them all on the internet. I'll have links to their social medias if you're interested in following them. They are all a delight. Um, we'll have you back again down the road. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks so Thanks much. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it by joining the ABA. Members get more, like our great magazine's discounts to partners like Beauty Books and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and opportunities to travel with us now that we are doing that again. Get information at aba.org slash join. I do want to make some shout outs this week to EJ Remsen of Pasadena, California, Danielle Salomon of Beverly Hills, California, Andrew and Samantha Gerty of Buffalo, New York, Robbie Kiefrider and the Kiefrider household of Warrington, Pennsylvania, Brian Miller and family of Meadville, Pennsylvania, Alex Lubman of Morgantown, West Virginia, Justin Hamlin of Nashville, Tennessee, Jeff Kinney and family of Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, and Peter Wimberger of Tacoma, Washington, who asks that isn't Nate too old to be telling that many dad jokes? And notes a happy Father's Day. Well, I am a dad, and it is my divine right to tell terrible jokes. So let's get to it. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who agrees with me, by the way, about the jokes, and noted that my episode-ending jokes are the woodstorkiniest jokes he's ever heard. And it was only later that I realized that that meant that the wasp. Technical production is by John Lowry, who finds the horned lark to be the friendliest bird, because its banding code is Ola. Additional help from David Hartley and Greg Neese, or maybe it's better to say David Hartley and Great Egret Neese. See where I'm going? You can find us online at aba.org and on the various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. As many of you know, I also help to maintain the ABA's Facebook groups, and I don't like to remove people unless they're really asking for it. But there was this one guy really bragging about his little stint, and I said, Northern Mockingbird, and laid some bank swallow on him for being a dick sizzle. And it was so overwhelming, I had to head to the barn swallow to take the edge off. I'm such a logger-edge shrike. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week. <laughs>